Today, we are wrestling with a difficult text about an ancient yet ever-present problem, violence against women. If you've ever been the victim of abuse, I want you to know beforehand that this sermon will address those topics. I don't want to catch you off guard or inadvertently cause you to relive your past in a way that would be unhelpful or unhealthy for you. With that, may God's healing and peace be with you. Where is the man? Where is the man? The answer to this question has been the rule of thumb and the rule of law for thousands of years. It's a lie that's gone by many names in history, the curse of Eve, natural law, Aristotelian biology, Roman jurisprudence, property rights, orders of creation, witches, the weaker sex, gender roles, a lady's place, separate spheres, family values, biblical virtue, southern culture, complementarianism, Proverbs 31, sexism, chauvinism, misogyny, the pay gap, reproductive injustice, gender inequality, male superiority, and the subjugation of women, just to name a few. But lest we be misled, the problem has never been women. It has always been the men. But where is the man? The rule of thumb we've been suffering under for most of Western history is patriarchal masculinity. Today, some call it toxic masculinity. But a feminist scholar, Bell Hooks, reminds us the crisis facing all of us is not just the crisis of masculinity itself, but the crisis of patriarchal masculinity. And until we make that distinction clear, men will continue to fear that any critique of patriarchy represents a personal threat to them. Hooks reminds us that as a system of domination, patriarchy not only harms those who identify as women, LGBTQ, and non-binary, but also those who identify as men. She claims the first act of violence patriarchy demands of men is not violence toward women. Patriarchy demands that men engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation to kill off the emotional parts of themselves. We indoctrinate boys into patriarchy by forcing them to deny their feelings. And if an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, they can count on other patriarchal men to enact rituals of power to assault their self-esteem. Like any other system of domination, patriarchy relies on everyone believing that there is an inferior and a superior party in all human relations, and that it's natural for the powerful to rule over the powerless. Patriarchy is used to make men feel that it is better to be feared than loved. And whether they can confess this or not, men know this is just not true. Yes. It's just not true. But where is the man who loved the woman who was brought to Jesus in the Gospel of John? On this first Sunday in Women's History Month, we must confess the ways that men, especially male pastors, have used the Bible as a tool to justify violence against women, to promote women's subjugation and protect their power. 
The Bible is filled with what Phyllis Tribble called texts of terror, stories that describe the violence and oppression of women. And these stories have often been treated casually and insensitively by white male biblical scholars and theologians. However, our world remains beset by violence against women, especially transgender women of color. And therefore, we can no longer accept impotent patriarchal interpretations. As feminist theologian and friend of our church, Carter Hayward, once wrote, we must help one another accept the fact that Christians are heirs to a body-despising, women-fearing, sexually repressive religious tradition. And if we are to continue to be a part of the church, we must challenge and transform it at the root. She says, what is required is not reformation. I'm speaking of a revolutionary transformation. Nothing less will do. So where is the man? Where is the man in the story from John 8? You know who I'm talking about. The man who allegedly had an extramarital affair with the woman that the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus in the temple. They said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Now, you know, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And as we read on, John reveals to us early that this was a test that they were using to try to bring a charge against Jesus. When we look back at John 7, immediately before this story, the preceding narrative, we see the same religious leaders trying to arrest Jesus for teaching without authority, but a scribe named Nicodemus intervened against them saying, our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing, does it? Nicodemus argued for due process under the Jewish law, and he succeeded temporarily. But it didn't take long for the religious authorities to cook up another plot to entrap Jesus. In their own twisted and malicious logic, they said, if we can't condemn Jesus without a trial, maybe we can get him to condemn somebody else. So they went and found a vulnerable woman and made her a pawn in their scheme. And I find it incredibly troubling that I've rarely ever heard a pastor or read a single commentary question the accusations of the Pharisees. How can we trust these men? False accusations about women have often preceded violence, like accusations of witchcraft that led to the lynching of women from the Middle Ages to the Salem trials. Why aren't we more suspicious of the Pharisees' accusations? Is it possible we've already judged the woman before she was kidnapped, captured, and brought against her will to the temple? Have we already judged her before she's even on the scene? Have we already condemned her to the Pharisees' accusations? We trust the men more. Why? It is our patriarchal masculinity that does not question why she's given no name, no choice, no voice, no words, no hearing, no trial. We don't know why she was the target of the Pharisees' scheme. But what we do know is that it always takes two to tango. 
but many of us never ask. Why is she there alone? Who, why, who was she with? Where's the dude? Where is her alleged lover? Where is the man? Mosaic law required that any accuser would bring forth at least two witnesses, and it not only required the the stoning of women for adultery, as the religious leaders said, but it also required the stoning of men caught in adultery as well. Yet the Pharisees brought no witnesses with them at all, and they did not drag any man before Jesus or even suggest that a man should be punished at all. In fact, they don't even mention him or that part of the Mosaic law. They only brought the woman. Some scholars believe that this is the reason Jesus completely ignored them, at least at first. He knew the law. He knew it was a trap right away. Many have speculated about what Jesus might have written when he bent down to scribble with his finger on the ground. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus ever wrote anything, which has made it the source of wild curiosity for Christians over the years. But I wonder if the thing that Jesus wrote on the ground was, where is the man? Where is the man? Where is the man? That question still plagues our society. Where is the man who will be shamed or condemned for his consensual sexual behavior? Where is the man who will be judged on appearance and held to abnormal standards of beauty? Where is the man whose body and clothing will be the subject of endless commentary? Where is the man whose autonomy and reproductive rights will be determined by a panel of women? Where is the man whose testimony will be doubted any time they are assaulted or abused? Where is the man who will show up and be forced to take responsibility? Where is the man who will be held accountable? Where is the man who will work to change the system of patriarchy? Where is the man who will stand alongside his lover and his mother, his wife and his daughter, his sister and his neighbors when they are unlawfully accused or abused and accept their fate as his own? I am exhausted by sermons and commentaries that speculate and interrogate the woman in this story. This story should not be named the woman caught in adultery because the woman in this story was captured and abused. A better title would be the hypocritical scholars, the sinful men, the abusive leaders. Scholar Gail O'Dale writes, when the scribes and Pharisees brought the woman to Jesus, they dehumanized her, turning her into an object for debate and discussion. But Jesus treated the woman as the social and human equal of the scribes and Pharisees. Yes, interpretations today that focus exclusively on the woman, interpretations that focus exclusively on her sexual behavior, continue to dehumanize and objectify her. Why aren't we better at interrogating the men in this story? The primary character is completely AWOL. All the male religious and political leaders are prepared to lynch a woman with stones in order to trap Jesus in a harebrained scheme. Even Jesus, another man in the story, seems all too calm and collected about the entire encounter. 
Why was he not incensed at the religious leaders for their wild accusations and attempted assault? I want the Jesus who was filled with righteous anger and turned over the tables of the money changers and chased everybody out of the temple with the fire of truth in his eyes and justice in his heart. Not this Jesus in the temple who calmly writes on the ground while the scribes and the Pharisees are trying to put a woman to death. Why did he ignore the religious leaders and their abuse? Was he simply refusing to acknowledge their deceptive questions and disregarding their ridiculous accusations or demands? Was this some kind of creative act of resistance on his part? Was he trying to show them something or slow the scene down and rob the religious leaders of their passion, their power, and their prey? I believe it is extremely telling that Jesus refused to engage in a legal or theological debate with those religious leaders while a woman's life was on the line. That's not a theological debate. Instead, he wrote on the ground, making the religious leaders wait in apprehension. Maybe he was thinking. Maybe he was drawing. Maybe he was writing the name of his mother or his disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. Jesus never answered the religious leaders' questions. But after ignoring them a while, he eventually stood up. And then he turned the tables on them, as he always did, and said, Let anyone among you who is without sin throw the first stone at her. In the spring of 2006, I was in my last year of seminary cruising toward graduation, auditing a course entitled Sex, Gender, and Discipleship, taught by feminist theologian Dr. Amy Laura Hall. We read books like Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man, and Black Sexual Politics, and Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith. And discussing these texts was incredibly formative for me as a man, but that's, that's not what changed my life that semester. While we were on spring break, the Duke lacrosse scandal took place. And the entire university and the, the whole city of Durham was completely turned inside out. And I remember returning to class in the days following the news of what happened that night at 610 North Buchanan Boulevard. And Dr. Hall got up in front of the class before us and just started weeping with lament. We all knew what the lacrosse players were capable of in those days. There was an epidemic of sexual assault on Duke's campus at that time, tied directly to parties that they had thrown and others. Dr. Hall invited the black women in the class to speak first. Many offered their own firsthand experiences of assault and the trauma it caused, not just to be assaulted, but to be disbelieved. As they spoke, I knew that we were standing on holy ground. And I'll never forget what one woman said. Where were the men that night? Where were the real men saying, no, this is wrong. We can't do this. Where were the men who would stand up to their teammates 
words, and deeds? Where were the men who could protect the women or at least get in the way to help them avoid getting hurt? Where were the real men of character and moral courage that night on 610 North Buchanan Boulevard? And then Dr. Hall painted a picture that shook me to my core. She summoned the parable of the Good Samaritan and stated, the church should be a community that spiritually and morally forms young men with such a deep and profound respect for women as beloved sisters that they could come upon a co-ed lying completely drunk and naked at night on the quad and not take any liberties with her or abuse her in any way, but do everything that they could to find a way to get her back to her dorm in safety. It was a rather dramatic parable, but the fact that so many in our class found her suggestion to be an impossible possibility illustrated to me how pervasive and entrenched the problem of patriarchal masculinity truly was. Where is the man? Where is the man who will be like Judah in the Old Testament when his daughter-in-law Tamar was accused of adultery and sentenced to be burned alive in Genesis 38 who came out to confront the mob saying, she is more righteous than I. Well, there is one man and he was writing with his hand on the ground. I wonder if the second time Jesus bent down to scribble in the sand, he wrote, I am the man. Jesus' prophetic words in this story not only stopped the lynching, they saved a woman's life. But this is not the story of a male savior sweeping in to save a damsel in distress. No, this is a story about the scribes and Pharisees being held accountable for twisting the law to their own ends and exploiting a woman. By bending down to write, Jesus gave the religious leaders time to reflect on their actions and determine whether or not they could measure up to the double standard that they were using against that woman. And when they slipped away in silence, we see the answer to Jesus' question. The scribes and Pharisees walk away indicted, equally guilty of sin, perhaps even more guilty of the accusation they'd levied against the woman. Their speechlessness and silent departure in shame was the hearing, the judge, and the jury, a tacit acknowledgement that they were not only sinners like we all are, but they were guilty of using and abusing this very woman in that very moment. Where is the man? Where did they all go? Jesus is the man. And the heart of this story is that Jesus will not stand for patriarchy. Jesus calls religious men to account for their sins against women. 
even when the world will not hold them responsible for immoral and unjust actions, upholding systems of oppression, participating in patriarchal masculinity, Jesus will still hold men responsible and cause them to account for their abuse, especially religious leaders and religious institutions. The church is not at all exempt or innocent when it comes to sexual assault. In fact, the church has often been guilty of providing safe havens for assault to happen and for abusers to go unaccountable. In fact, the church has not only failed the survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, in many cases, the church has been the abuser. And so we must tell the truth about ourselves and our own history in order to reckon with this sordid narrative and acknowledge that the church has some serious work to do. Did you notice that it was only after her accusers and abusers were called to account and challenged for their sins and out of the picture and off the scene that the woman in this story finally finds her voice? It's horrifically painful and traumatic to suffer in silence. And no one should ever feel as if they cannot speak up for themselves when they are accused or abused. But maybe there is a lesson in this for men that given the historical legacy of violence against women, the burden is now and always will be on us to establish a relationship of trust and safety. Bell Hooks once wrote, the fear of maleness estranges men from every woman in their lives to a greater or lesser degree, and men feel the loss. Ultimately, one of the emotional costs of allegiance to patriarchy is to be seen as unworthy of trust. If women in patriarchal culture are taught to see every male as potential abusers, then we cannot offer those men our trust. And without trust, there is no love. It may seem anachronistic to call Jesus a feminist, but his behavior in this story was certainly liberative, and it meets the definition of feminism that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie uses in her book, We Should All Be Feminists. She writes, a feminist is a person who believes in the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. She says, my great-grandmother was a feminist. She ran away from the house of a man she did not want to marry and married the man of her choice. She refused and protested, spoke up when she felt like she was being deprived of land or access because she was a woman. She did not know the word feminist, but it doesn't mean she wasn't one. More of us should claim that word, Chimamanda says. The best feminist I know, she says, is my brother, Kene who is kind and good-looking, a very masculine young man. My own definition of a feminist is a man or woman or anyone else who says, yes, there is a problem with gender as it is today, and we must fix it. We must do better. All of us, men and women, must do better. If Adichie is right, we can all be feminists, we must ask then, 
Where is the man who will be a feminist? Where is the woman who will be a feminist? Where are the followers of Jesus the feminist? Where is the church who will be feminist? I say we are here. We are here. We are already here. We are here when we stand up like Jesus to confront abusive religious leaders. We are here when we call men to accountability for violence and subjugation of women. We are here when we break the snares that try to entrap so many people into patriarchal masculinity. We are here when we create safe spaces for women and non-binary individuals to share the truth of their experience. We are here when we raise awareness about the issue of exploitation and abuse. We are here when we insist that survivors have nothing to be ashamed of and they are beloved children of God. We are here when we work to prevent abusive behavior in families and schools, neighborhoods, churches, and businesses. We are here when we teach our children to have a deep and profound respect for women. We are here when we advocate and organize for the social, political, and economic equality of the sexes. We are here when we respond to the abuse of women like Jesus did with a stunning rebuke, a call to accountability, and an invitation to new life and a new future free of patriarchy. We are here when we come to smash the patriarchal masculinity that is hurting us all, and work together to build a world of justice and equality. If we do that, then the woman in this story and the women in all our stories will never stand alone, accused and abused, because like Jesus, we will be kneeling down beside them in solidarity and in struggle writing on the ground with our fingers. We are here. We are here. Amen.